but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat in the house. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> Any questions before we begin? No, no, I, but I do have an announcement. What's that? Um, it's 49 weeks until Oshkosh 2018. <laughs> That's good to know. That's good to know. Although this is now we're into the season where we do the countdown to sun and fun. I think I see that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, there's two countdowns, you know, and each has its place, but, uh, are you saying you can't wait? Are you saying you had fun at Oshkosh and you're looking forward to it? Or are you dreading the next Oshkosh already? I am not dreading the next Oshkosh. I had fun. Um, you know, <sighs> It's interesting. Um, all the the comments, all the reports, even from those who um, might be somewhat more cynical, yeah, if that's if that's the right word, uh, of the 2017 edition of AirVenture, were were basically ecstatic. You know, everybody came away from from the show saying that this is one of the best ever, if not the best, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just find that interesting. It, it, I think it was a good year. I, I enjoyed yeah, it. I, definitely a good uh, year. The way I've okay. characterized it to people as being not one of the greatest years ever, but a good solid year with a couple of highlights that were outstanding. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's faint mm-hmm. praise. I don't mean it to be. Um, I thought it was a good solid year. The weather was great. The days were great. The, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, things we saw, you know, the airplanes that were there, you know, and then there were a handful that were outstanding. The bomber thing really stands out in my mind. The bomber thing was yeah. just, just pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, sadly you were gone for the highlight, what I consider the highlight of the bomber thing, which was the, uh, Saturday afternoon when they did the, uh, yeah. the B1, B2, bomber, B52 bomber day, bomber day. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was pretty cool. I don't know if you had a chance to see any of the video, Jeff, but uh, it was. I did see some of it. Yeah. It was pretty impressive to see those three airplanes come by, uh, in formation, and uh, followed by a pair of B twenty nines, followed by by a whole bunch of B twenty fives. You know, so mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. The whole thing is cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, how many days until Oshkosh eighteen? I didn't. I didn't do the days. Uh, months. Um, oh, but it didn't, uh, I'm it sorry, weeks, weeks, oh, 40, weeks, 49 weeks, 49 weeks, 49, 49 yes. weeks. Okay. All right. Yes. And counting and counting and counting. But of course, by the time this gets on the street, it might be, you know, 40, but <laughs> okay. All right. All right. We're going to let you get away with that for a little bit longer, but we're going to see if we can do something about that. But okay. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Okay. Who put this on the list? Jeff or David? I mean, it feels like a David thing. I don't know. Let me. Look. It's, it's a Dave thing. It's a Dave thing. Yeah, it is a Dave thing. All right. Uh, repairing your airplane in flight. All right. And this is a somewhat dramatic example here of people who are climbing out onto the wings and reaching around the cowlings and 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 whatnot in order to repair their airplanes in flight. What the heck, David? What 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 what's this all about? A little piece of aviation history from uh, 1924, if you can believe it, uh, when uh, barnstorming and, and, and wing-walking acts were all the rage and airplane-to-airplane transfers were uh, not an uncommon display. Gladys Engel of the 13 Black Cats, that was a flying group, and one of the planes lost a tire on takeoff, lost the whole wheel, just came off the axle. And she gets, well, if you watch the video, you'll see it. She gets a wheel, goes up in another airplane, transfers to the stricken airplane, maneuvers herself inboard toward the fuselage where she then hangs upside down kind of and puts the wheel on the axle so that the guy can land with two wheels. And it's not staged. It was like one of these, well, this will show people what we can do things. That came out of a, what otherwise might have been a, a, an unhappy outcome. It just—I've never seen anything else like it. How do you know this wasn't staged? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure, they did this routinely, right? They did this routinely. This was—was uh, this one of the? There, there have been a handful of of endurance records attempts right. over the years, right? right? Where in order to stay airborne in an aircraft for many days, all right, 
It involved crude mid-air refueling and oil changes, for that matter, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, is that what this More is? More like David? oil replenishment. Or oil <laughs> replenishment, probably. Yeah, right. And uh, um, is that what these are, or, or was this someone actually repairing a, a, an impromptu, unscheduled problem? Oh, this, uh, from all appearances and everything, I've seen this before and, uh, and, and did a little research on it uh, about 20 years ago. And uh, this was a real deal. Uh, the uh, stricken airplane lost a wheel on takeoff. And uh, lady straps a, a replacement wheel on her back and gets transferred to the stricken airplane. <laughs> yeah, crawls okay. in. Crawls inbound between it. These are biplanes, of course, but monoplanes weren't weren't yet the the dominant force that they are today. Climbs inboard to uh, where she can reach the left gear strut. Mm-hmm. Unties the wheel assembly that she's got strapped on her back. Hangs upside down. Ma- maneuvers the wheel into place. Puts it on the axle, and they land. Sure. Yeah, she didn't really hang upside down, but she climbs down onto that bloody gear and hangs there while she puts the tire on. There's yeah. a whole wheel on. Okay. All right. If you say so. I, uh, yeah. I, I've told the story before about, and this is a secondhand story, a friend, a good friend of mine, a good pilot friend of mine tells a story about the time he was flying with a third friend in the third friend's Cardinal. And, um, and they were getting ready to land, and they were getting a good gear indication, right, that the gear was down. And um, and the owner of the Cardinal, sitting in the right seat, um, was also a very experienced skydiver, which kind of plays into the story, in my mind, anyways. And so they're doing all the checklists in order to try and get the gear down, and it's not working, it's not working. And the Cardinal owner, experienced skydiver, i.e. not so afraid of heights, says, you fly the airplane... I'm going to grab the, and he had the tow bar from, for the aircraft in the, from the back seat. He says, I'm going to lean out the door and I'm going to whack at the gear. I'm going to try and push them into position. And my friend was like, wait, time out, time out, you know, make a little tea with his hands, you know, time out. (laughs) You're going to do what? He says, no, it's going to be fine. I'm strapped in. I'm not going to fall out. All right. He says, but no, you don't do that. He says, yeah, no, I'm going to do it. I mean, it's going to be drag you, but you're, you know, my friend was a good pilot. So he knew how to, uh, you know, you know, being forewarned, he was, he could handle this. And so. And, and apparently they did this, and I don't know whether that was what caused the gear to lock, but they ultimately got the gear locked and landed. But my friend was always horrified. And he was a pretty experienced pilot. I mean, he, he had been in a lot of experiences, but this one flipped him out. The idea that my friend was going to, or the third guy was going to lean out of the airplane in flight and uh, and whack at the gear. So there's an in-flight repair. Have you guys... That follows the old anti-Carly repair page, repair manual. It's on one page. If first that? it doesn't work, get a bigger hammer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Jeb? <laughs> well, two things. One, there's, um, I guess, the endurance record, or to, to the extent that there is such a record, I don't know. But uh, um, there was a, a um, endurance record set. Uh, back in uh, the late 50s, using a 172, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a bunch of stuff on the on the Google about this. Um, this was uh, during the months of December 1958 and January and February 1959. Okay, you're saying they flew for all that time? 64 days, 22 hours, and 19 minutes. There you go. Okay. Wow. This was in a 172. And uh, they weren't like aerial refueled. They would, and there's pictures of this. I'll uh, I'll zap you some links here. Um, they basically dropped a hose down um, right. to uh, a truck. Oh, oh, the from, uh, okay, from the flying airplane. They dropped from a hose the flying down. air. They dropped a hose down from the from the flying airplane as they you know flew along a, a highway or a road or something like that. And um, the uh, they had a pump or something, and and they would refuel the airplane that way. They they did the same thing with uh, oil and uh, various, you know, I'm sure, food and and a, and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. But 
um, there's a um, again, again, there's there's uh, uh, pictures and, and commentary out there. Um, AOPA's got a, a fairly lengthy uh, uh, page up. Um, yeah. Um, they they did it. This was out near Las Vegas, and the the airplane apparently I don't know if it's still there or not. Apparently, the airplane was at one point in the terminal at McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. Oh, really? Oh, maybe that's where yeah. I, I have an image in my head that I'd seen this airplane. Maybe that's where it is. Yeah. Now, uh-huh. I want to do the math here for a second. How, so how slow can one fly a 172? You know, we're probably, I guess you can probably, I, I should get it down to 50, 55, 60 miles an hour without any trouble. Uh, okay. It's yeah. still zooming down the highway at 60 miles an hour. Pumping gas is still a thing, but okay. It's not quite as dramatic I'm, as I had imagined. I'm not saying it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be Abby normal. Yeah, yeah. Abby normal. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. On that, well, welcome, folks, I guess, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat speechless. I am Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you from high atop Lookout Point in beautiful Nottingham, New Hampshire, where I'm talking uh, in our virtual hangar to my two good friends who are uh, scattered around America. Uh, first voice out there is uh, is uh, is Jeb Burnside from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Uh, how you doing, Jeb? What's going on? Nothing much. Uh, um, just uh, enjoying a chat with you folks on a Monday morning. On a Monday morning. This is like, yeah. we've been doing mornings a lot lately. I don't know whether we've changed. For years and years, we did afternoons, and mornings were the were the exception. And we seem to be on a streak of mornings. I, I'm, we, started, I'm, we, started this doing, we started doing this in the evenings, like 7 p.m. or yeah, something, right, like something like that. that. Well, yeah, traditionally, we always managed to wrap it up around beer 30. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, anyways. Well, we're all getting older, though, so 7 p.m. is like bedtime now. Yeah, I know. That's pretty late. I don't uh, – yeah, that's – that's. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I was liking the uh, mid-afternoons we were doing there for a while, 5. But, uh, but And 10 has its pros and cons. 10 in the morning has its pros and cons, um, especially since it's 10 in the morning for you and me, Jeb. But uh, it's, uh, it's 9 o'clock uh, in the morning where uh, my other good friend is sitting this morning uh, from uh, the air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas, in the central time zone is Dave Higdon. Hi, David. What's going on? with you oh uh pretty much the same old same old uh doing a little writing work doing a little uh, home building work uh doing a little homeowner chores and sundry stuff uh finally counting myself as caught up with oshkosh really yeah. caught up from oshkosh okay I mean, that's when you say caught up in terms of also all the very, you, you were like going gangbusters, collecting assignments and, and projects that you were going to work on after you got back from Oshkosh. Are those done as well? Well, not all of them. Uh, some of them will play out here over the re- balance of the year, right. but everything imminent and everything that I owe uh, is uh, out the door today. And the yard is cut and string trimmed and the laundry is caught up. And the house has been swept, and the dog brushed. Well, then you're a better man than I am. Uh, I was going to say, dude, um, you want to move to Florida? And, <laughs> I and, know, uh, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it, it 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 was not exactly a weekend off, but then again, it was less work than the weekend before. So, yeah. So, huh. what's uh, what's been going on here? Um, first thing on the list. And this is actually a list that I create. I, 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 I fine-tuned this list about five days ago when we thought we were going to record, and then we got scrubbed, and I haven't really revisited it here. The first thing on the list is uh, ATC privatization. Is, is, uh, are, are things going well on this subject? I, I, I thought I got the impression that, that it was kind of, I don't want to say promising exactly, but it was kind of moving in the right direction. Yes? No? That, 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 that'd be a, that'd be a, a, a fair assessment, although... Where we are right now is at a point of no movement. Uh, just before the Senate checked out for the August recess, the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee uh, passed out its version of FAA reauthorization and specifically rejected privatization or, in the language, spending any money 
to study or advance or any other such proposals to uh, take ATC out of the FAA. So that's going to be a significant uh, hurdle for proponents to overcome. And there aren't enough proponents in the Senate as of last headcount I got to uh, to overturn that amendment mm-hmm. uh, in the appropriations bill or the FAA reauthorization bill. In the House, uh, it, it's not going swimmingly for uh, Representative Schuster, the, the main proponent of this, over in the House either. Uh, he did get a little... Uh, What's the word I want? He did a little success with divide and conquer in attracting a couple of people to uh, uh, his proposal with a promise that general aviation would continue to pay only a fuel tax and not user fees. And sadly, one of those was uh, the Republican co-founder of the General Aviation Caucus mm-hmm. who came over. But the bill's not looking like it's getting a lot of traction in either chamber. And the uh, opponents uh, just keep growing in numbers and in in an action. So, right, right. yeah, we're a long way from this being resolved. But right now, the winds are blowing pretty good on our back. Okay, yeah, Je- uh, yeah, Jeb. When I said moved in the right direction, I heard you sigh a little bit. But- yeah, I, I think um, that's a that's an accurate statement, a fair statement. I think the. Uh, um, the final chapters have, have yet to be written here, and the, the danger uh, comes as we get closer to uh, September 30. Uh, at, at this uh, at this point, on this day, um, both houses of Congress are in recess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, House and Senate, uh, everybody kind of sort of went home, and, right. and they're doing they're doing it's it's August. It's right. the it's August recess, August. and that's it's August 14th. Yeah, today. yeah. yeah. Um, They'll be back um, after Labor Day. Yeah, after Labor Day, I was going to say the week after Labor Day, um, and they've got um, a, a bunch of stuff on their plates, not related to aviation. Uh, there's federal budget. There's debt ceiling. There's some other uh, very divisive, very important stuff that has to be done just to keep the doors open and the lights on. The danger I see. Um, is that there will be some huge omnibus type of bill that would include FAA as well as you know other uh, agencies that that um, uh, and other appropriations bills, um, other agencies that that need specific legislation, uh, and that uh, as the result of some 3 a.m. deal, uh, that this could get uh, stuck into something. Sure. That, that ATC privatization could get stuck into something that is must pass. Um, I don't give that a great deal of of uh, weight, in that uh, I think the uh, uh, opposition to ATC privatization would make this a deal breaker, um, just given the politics of the House and Senate right now. Um, in fa- I think the um, the outcome would be more in favor of as clean and minimal um, a, a debt limit bill or a budget bill or, or whatever as possible, just given, again, the, the politics. Um, if, if, in fact, that comes to pass, the politics are so screwed up that uh, um, we could see complete, you know, uh, another shutdown here around October 1. Um, but that's another topic for another right, another podcast. Right. right. Um, so it's a there, whole different can of worms. It's a whole too. different can of worms. Yeah. Uh, so there's a window of opportunity for those in favor of ATC privatization uh, to get something moving, but that window is is very slowly closing. Uh, if I were to um, guess right now, I would give it fifty fifty. Uh, of this getting out of the house, oh, okay. uh, and um, um, less than that, less favorable odds than that of this getting past the Senate. All in all, would mean that it it would not become law. ATC privatization would not become law. But 
stranger things have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that uh, uh, the present bunch in Congress can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, so anything can happen, and that's what I just said about 50-50 or less than that odds should not preclude anyone from picking up the phone and calling their their federal Congress critters yeah. um, to uh, um, you know, express their opposition to this to ATC privatization. And in fact, now during the August break is a really good time to to uh, go try to see said Congress critter uh, if he or she is back home uh, and um, not so much pound the table, but forcefully, make the point that this is a really, really, really bad idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and let me uh, state it a different way. Um, it's uh, don't don't take the somewhat encouraging news about maybe it's not going to pass as as a as an indication that you don't need to make these calls. You, you, you really, I agree with you, Jeb. You, we need I, to... I would put it a different way. As long as we keep the pressure up, and as long as we stay visible in opposition. Um, we stand a good chance of not seeing this enacted. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, I'm sure we're coming back to this. <laughs> this was a big, oh yeah. This was a big yeah, part this... of the uh, Sunday episode at Oshkosh, where uh, Rick Perry from AEA came on and uh, mm-hmm. and and gave us some uh, you know yet a whole new kind of perspective on why this is a bad idea. So it's yeah. you know it's like it's it, it's a bit of an understatement to say we're living in remarkable times right now, um, but. One of the remarkable aspects of all this, in my view, is the incredible range of people who think this is a bad idea. I mean, it just goes from all of us GA pilots through industry people through, you know, uh, you know, airline pilots who can speak openly, who are still working to retired airline pilots who certainly can speak freely. You know, I mean, you know, the one I'm thinking of is Sully Sullenberger, all right, has been right. very, very vocal, um, very, very outspoken um, in his opposition to this idea and, and others. It's just like, I mean, it's just remarkable that this has any traction at all, considering how broadly, I, I guess it goes to show you what I don't know, Citizens United and the airline industry's ability to make donations. I don't know. I'm speaking well, out. That, it, well, well it, it's, it's, it goes to show what a determined chairman of, of a, an authorizing committee um, can do um, if he or she puts their mind to it. Um, and, Which yeah, there's a lot. Of, are you speaking of Schuster? I'm, I'm speaking of Bill Schuster, yeah, uh, chairman of the House Transportation Committee. And what state is he from? Pennsylvania. Thank you. Okay. uh, um, Yeah. Um, There's a lot of bipartisan opposition to this in both both chambers, um, especially in the Senate. Um, And, uh, you know, that certainly bodes well. But again, you know, there's there's 3 a.m. deals that are cut. There's, Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of mischief that can happen. Um, between now and the, and the end of this congressional right. session. And this is not the time to let our guard down. Um, we should approach this um, from a standpoint of, of strength and say, you know, this is not the way to do this. This is not the way to do any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, some have said, you know, we don't need privatization. We need modernization. Well, you know, I got a hot flash. We are getting modernization. We, we, just last week, the FAA announced that some some component of next gen went online ahead of schedule and under budget, which you know, it, everything's relative, of course. Uh, um, you know, people say, oh, the FAA is, is always over budget and always late. And and yeah, sometimes that they are indeed. I would suggest that other agencies in the federal government have have similar issues, and uh, every now and then they do win one. It's just the nature of government contracting. It's the nature of trying to invent new technology. It's the nature of of trying to r- replace a lost wheel while the airplane is in flight. Yeah. So, everybody, reach out to your representatives. Let them know what you think. And senators. Well, I, I, yeah, I meant representatives with a lowercase r, but yes. Okay. Your, yeah. your, your lawmakers. Yes, exactly yes. right. Exactly right. Okay, so I know you guys hate it when I'm wrong, but I was wrong again. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. We're, we're, this is like this is like deja vu all over again. Huh? I know, really. What, what, are you, what are we thinking? There's a great there's a great line from The West Wing where uh, where C.J. Craig uh, said uh, there's only so many times I can go into the Oval Office and say I was wrong. Right? So that's and I'm running out of opportunities to say I was wrong and getting away with it here. Last episode before Oshkosh. I spoke quite passionately about my analysis of the Air Canada almost taxiway landing thing in San Francisco from about, a, I don't know, six weeks ago now, maybe, something like that. Um, and my, my, my argument was that uh, this thing was still developing and uh, no way would this airplane have gotten close enough to actually land on this taxiway. There's any number of reasons, reasons why <laughs> it would have got waved off. All right. Um, and uh, it got, I, I felt it was just being blown out of proportion. Well, it's beginning to look like maybe it wasn't blown out of proportion. It's beginning to look that way. Um, in fact, uh, before we even posted that episode, um, so uh, the uh, um, some uh, folks on the Internet had done some analysis uh, based on public information um, about where they estimated. And, and by the way, to you guys' credit, you both said, I'd really like to know where this airplane was at the moment it was waved off, all right? Um, and I had envisioned it being kind of, you know, 30 seconds out on final, all right? I thought it was still a ways off, all right? Um, you guys very, very astutely asked the question, wait a minute, where is this airplane? And it yeah, and, and I, I shared your thought that this was that the the incident aircraft was uh, um, several seconds, if not you know a half mile or more from the runway threshold. That turns out not to have been the case. Yeah. Um, so uh, so some some internet folks um, did some analysis uh, that has been somewhat basically embraced by the NTSB now since then. Um, that at the time this airplane was waved off, um, it had already crossed the numbers. All right? It had probably already passed overhead the first airplane on the taxiway. This Air Canada, by all by all evidence, and we're still collecting evidence. I mean, you know, you never know, all right. But the evidence seems to indicate that this airplane was scary, horrifyingly close to touching yeah. down on this runway. Yeah, and it's not clear to me. Um, that in fact, the uh, that ATC waved off the aircraft yeah. before yeah. it began its go around. Oh, okay, I hadn't heard uh, that part. It, it, yeah. it, I think the exact sequence of events is that the aircraft, the the uh, it was an Airbus, Air Canada Airbus, had already initiated a go around by the time controllers in the tower um, told it to go around. Okay, but it. At this time, is a scary number. This is a scary number. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead, David. 2.5 seconds after advancing the thrust levers to start their go-around, the minimum altitude recorded on the flight data recorder, and this is a digital flight data recorder, was 59 feet above the ground. What are you reading from, David? Is this the NTSB thing? Yes. Okay. 59 feet above the ground, and the height of the tail of some of the airplanes on the taxiway was 55 feet above the ground. So you throw in there, does that 59 feet above the ground, is that below the wheel trucks or is that below the sensor in the cockpit? Is that the belly? Is that the avionics bay? Is that, yeah. what is that number? Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we're, we're talking, we're talking scary close yeah. There's to a, some major tragedy. There's an image here um, in this uh, NTSB, this is a, a press release from the NTSB, and it's it's re really kind of it's dated August two. It's really kind of funky. Um, they have a, a black and white photo right. of the um, the taxiway and the runway complex at SFO. There's a a circle uh, around the lights. This is at night, of course. There's a circle around the lights. Um, of the the incident aircraft, uh, literally passing over the first aircraft in line yeah. on the taxiway. Yeah, and and, 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 he, and he got lower. And it got lower than that. And you're like, what? There's a lot going on here. There's there's a in addition to this press release, there's some additional material 
um, put out by the NTSB on this. And I was right in that these, the, the crew of this, this airplane had lined up, basically the SFO has, uh, in this case, uh, um, two parallel runways, two eight left and two eight right. Two eight left was closed. Yes, not and yes, okay. you're right. You 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 asked this question as well. Not simply yeah. closed, but completely unlit. It completely unlit. And what happened is the Air Canada crew uh, knew that, and um, they decided, but they didn't know apparently that the, all the lights were off. That the two eight left was dark. Right. So they saw the lights of two eight right, and knowing it was closed, set up for the lights to the right of two eight right. Yeah. The lights to the right of two eight right were the taxiway. Were the taxiway. The parallel taxiway. Which still begs the question of those lights look very different to me. Anyways, I think they do. They're different those colors. Lights, they're, they're different those, brightnesses. They're blue. I know. They're blue. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. I, it's yeah. Go ahead, David. And and all the airplanes on the taxiway are pointed in the opposite direction of the landing aircraft. They all have lights on. Yeah. They've all got their taxi lights on. Their tails are all lit up with the telltale. Uh, you know, one of the one of the greatest inventions in aviation safety is lighting up the tail. So mm-hmm. I mean, it works even better than strobes. Uh, this was just scary close. Yeah. Scary close. It's just uh, mind-boggling. It's just I, I keep coming back to the joke, the the the, the word that's become a joke. It, it, inconceivable. I mean, it's just inconceivable. How did yeah. this happen? How yeah. how do you make? You got to you got to say it like Wallace Shawn does. I, I, I don't mean, know if I can. Inconceivable. How's that? There's got to be a slight lisp. In oh well, yeah, too. I can't do that part. But yeah, okay. Inconceivable. We got, we got to get that sound bite out of the Princess Bride. That's okay. it's all all there is to it. We may have just heard it, it. we may have just heard it, it in the podcast just right now. So you never know. It should not surprise you to learn I have that DVD. Well, maybe that will play into the solution. <laughs> you keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Anyways, yeah. All right. So, um, you know, we're going to learn more. Hopefully, we're going to learn more. I I don't know whether. It well, seems to me that the, now the question has become not whether this thing happened, you know, and, and how and, and to what extent it happened, but how did they make this mistake? How, what I, is there a is this just a wild card mistake or is there some procedural change that can be made that will reduce the likelihood in the future? Oh, man, there is there was some talk um, uh, about some technology um, and apparently the NTSB apparently several years ago, several being six or eight maybe, um, recommended uh, implementation of some technology um, to uh, kind of ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen. At the time, the the FAA rejected that recommendation, uh, I'm sure for a variety of reasons, not least of which was their opinion that the technology was not ready. Okay. Um, Do you know anything now, about the nature of this technology? Was it it's some sort of it's an cockpit? Ac- you know, no, it's it's a surface detection technology. Um, I, I I could research it. No, no, um, no I was just that's just curious. But, but the punchline is, uh, at the time, and I'm thinking maybe 2011 or something like that, um, the FAA determined that the technology was not ready. Uh, for this, um, they have recently, in, in light of this event, uh, revisited that and decided that you know, yeah, maybe this maybe this technology is ready for prime time now. Uh, and I, I can't tell you; I'm afraid to to even mention what it should, what that technology is, because I simply don't know off the top sure. of my head. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's basically a, a, a surveillance uh, technology that. Um, would help ensure that aircraft are lined up for the correct surface. This is not the first time that an airliner has landed on or attempted to land on a taxiway. It happened to Delta maybe 10 years ago in Atlanta one morning. Um, thankfully, there was no, uh, there were no uh, obstacles or, or aircraft on that taxiway. Um, be that as it may, we'll we'll see what happens. I I, I don't know. I mean, in that that press release has a link at the bottom of it to uh, 
to additional details uh, from the FR, I should say, from the NTSB. Um, I don't know if um, this will get a a, um, a probable cause determination, uh, or if um, um, well, I guess I guess so. Additional information will be released as warranted. The docket for the investigation will be open to the public before release of the final NTSB report. NTSB investigations generally take 12 to 18 months to complete. Mm-hmm. Any updates can be found on this page. Um, the last update was published on August 2. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and, you know, you talk about landing on – in, in, incorrectly landing on a taxiway when you think you're landing on a runway and the lights being different. I mean, we had an incident here uh, – Jiminy, the 2013, I think it was, November, it was a lousy winter day, uh, winter night, when a Boeing 747 Dreamlifter, which is a big parts hauler, uh, operated by Atlas Air, was supposed to be on approach to McConnell Air Force Base, where it was going to pick up parts from the uh, triple, uh, 787 from Spirit Aero Systems, and it landed several miles to the north on the uh, much less capable runway of uh, Jabara Airport. And in stopping, uh, created a new Grand Canyon. And (laughs) (laughs) I was going to wonder, yeah. The pavement couldn't take it is what you're saying. Multiple Grand Canyons, yeah. The pavement wasn't near rated for the, uh, uh, even the uh, lightweight of that airplane. And, uh, created quite a show getting it back out of there and, and they basically offloaded everything and offloaded fuel and had to send over a big tug from uh, McConnell to turn it around because nothing at Chabara was going to move that puppy but uh, in my mind this comes down to you know macro situational awareness knowing where you are where you're lined up and paying attention and when a two crew aircraft like this makes that kind of mistake you have to wonder what their focus was coming into it. Yeah, am I am I correct? And, and I, and, Go ahead, David. And I'm I sorry. plead guilty. That's all right. I'm just going to say, and I plead guilty to having almost landed on a taxiway once myself. Uh, Daytime and or it nighttime? Oh, uh, it was dusk. Okay. It was dusk, and there were long shadows, and the lights, runway lights, weren't on yet. And uh, the only lights I saw were on uh, the runway. And so I slid over to the vacant pavement that turned out to be a taxiway. I figured that out when a, another airplane taxied off the ramp onto it and headed it toward me. Uh, no, not the right place. Not the right place. Yeah, don't really. don't want was, to do that. Yeah. I was still a half a mile out and, and five, six hundred feet up. So I didn't get near as close as this Air Can uh, Airbus did. But right. Right. You know, it was it was a little chastening to me to sure. make that kind of mistake. And then the lights came up, and when the lights came up, it was obvious it was a taxiway. It was blue lights. Yeah. Am I correct in assuming that in the case of this Air Canada, Airbus, San Francisco thing, that they probably did not manage to capture the cockpit recorder data? Oh, yeah, they did. They did. Had, wouldn't, oh, yeah. it, wouldn't it have cycled out of, don't, don't these things rotate and after time it goes away and this didn't become an issue in time for them to capture it? I, that's what I'm assuming. I don't know. Well, that th- this became an issue the day it happened. And that's how they got the flight data recorder data, too. Oh, they did? Uh, okay. Yeah. The flight was down to 59 feet. Yeah. I thought that that was got from some other data source, but okay, that's good. Okay. The, the flight data uh, recorder... Um, is the what you know, came up with this this fifty nine feet data and whatnot? Uh, according to the NTSB, I'm going to read this verbatim. According to the NTSB, quote: the incident airplane's cockpit voice recorder had been overwritten. Yeah. Ah. So NTSB investigators did not have that data. Um, your guess is as good as mine why a um, digital fl- cockpit voice recorder got overwritten in a, on a go-around. Well, I, I'm not suggesting that it got overwritten through any sinister means other than the fact that this, because this didn't become an investigation quickly enough, the, the, the loops had, had, had just cycled around. Yeah, 
by the time. Yeah, that could be. All right. That could be. Um, and although the loops are longer now, as I understand it, than they used to be in the old days, they're still not three weeks, you know? And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that, that was been my assumption that, so that confirms that David, as far as the flight data is concerned, it, it's possible they got it from the aircraft. I read an account that talked about how they recreated this information from other data sources, and I don't recall exactly what those were. We could do a little research. But apparently this is where the initial Internet investigators, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of putting air quotes around that, the, the amateur investigators um, found some sources of public data a la, not necessarily, but a la, um, um, you know, AirNav, Air uh, um, FlightAware, and liveatc.net and all these kinds of things and by by putting all this together they were able to come up with a take a stab at recreating the the, the locations that's was a, my understanding and, and I, I may do some more research and kind of get a better answer to that but anyways well again from the uh ntsb release uh this one sentence about 2.5 seconds after advancing the thrust levers the minimum altitude recorded on the FDR, the flight okay. data recorder, right. was 59 well, feet above the ground. Oh, that's, that's compelling. And if memory serves, th- th- these are all digital flight data recorders now, uh, right. not the old style, and have you know a couple of hundred data points that they can recover. No, I know, I know. Well, that's that's encouraging. That, but it would have been nice to get the the cockpit voice because to hear what sure the, what was going on up there. Um, but uh, okay, anyways, the. Uh, there we go. Inconceivable. 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 <laughs> Hi, this is Jack. We here at Uncontrolled Airspace are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. There are two simple ways that you can contribute to this podcast. You can make a one-time, non-repeating donation by using PayPal. It doesn't need to be very much. As little as 10 or $15 is a big, big help. Or you can make an automatically repeating per-episode pledge with Patreon. With the online service Patreon.com, you can pledge as little as $1 per episode, put limits on your per-month contribution, and change or cancel your pledge at any time. For more information about how you can support this podcast in one of these ways, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. That will take you to a page with details on both these support methods. Thanks. What else here? We actually, believe it or not, are, well, not exactly reaching the end of the allotted time, but we're, let's see now. Um, TikTok, 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 TikTok. No, that's literally what I was doing. I was, I was playing with my little timer here. Uh, I, I hope that we're going to have a talk, an opportunity to speak um, in a future episode um, with a little bit more authority on this following subject. But I just wanted to get it on the table here. Um, this Lycoming um, AD that was originally a service bulletin. Is that the right terminology? Um, and yeah. now become an AD. All right. Um, is this a big deal? Yeah, it could be. First of all, this is a proposed AD. Uh, I thought they rushed it to into place. I thought they issued an emergency. Yeah. I thought they bypassed the whole process and said, uh, Go. okay. Okay. I, I will. Um, well, I guess, I guess they did. Well, hang on a second. Yeah, they did. You're right. I'm sorry. Uh, um, it is an emergency AD. Yeah. So it's basically there now, right? Within 10 hours. So there's a so that there's something on the order. The number I saw was like 700, seven hundreds and yeah. hundreds of Lycoming engines potentially have these bad bushings. Yeah. And and are now by AD required to if they fall into the right category and there's a way to look up your engine um you got to go and get a thirteen hundred dollar inspection on your engine just to find out whether or not it's it's worn in a bad way right yeah there's two or three things going on here first of all uh um according to uh uh mike bush's um email on this from last week uh, the FAA estimates that this AD affects 778 engines mm-hmm. okay, that's the number installed on, on airplanes of U.S. registry. I estimate the inspection to cost $1,275 and $150 in parts. Um, that's just wildly optimistic. Yeah, uh, that's just the inspection. That doesn't talk that's about just the, the repair. Exactly. That's just the inspection. And the way that um, 
Um, the inspection has to be done. Let, let's back up. Um, this is a bushing that is on the small end of the connecting rods. Um, Lycoming uh, sourced these bushings from a, a third-party supplier. Um, they came in slightly undersized. And Lycoming installed these bushings in overhaul, factory overhaul and, and factory reman engines, as well as sold these bushings as, as new parts for um, uh, in-service engines being worked on in the field. Um, I believe that's correct anyway. That's my understanding um, as well, yes. And the AD lists various engines by serial number. Uh, according apparently to to Lycoming records, uh, and I think the the way the and I haven't read the AD. I think the way the AD would be written would be if there was any such part number installed on your engine during the dates X to Y, uh, you must perform the inspection. The inspection itself involves uh, deploying a calibrated tool. Um, to measure the ability, uh, the, the, I don't know if the ability is the right word, me- measure the friction of this bushing in that, in that connecting rod to see if it can be pushed out easily. Um, there aren't very many of these, these calibrated tools in existence either. Right. Um, furthermore, um, anytime one removes a cylinder... Um, on an engine like this, um, other kinds of mischief occurs. Um, typically, and I don't know everything there is to know about uh, these various Lycoming engines, but typically um, the way these engines are assembled and held together is through bolts. And um, uh, you get a basically a bolt that, uh, uh, or, or a threaded shaft or something like that, that extends from, for example, one side of the engine to the other um, and that bolt or that threaded rod does double duty not only does it hold the case halves together the case being split vertically um, it also holds the, the uh, cylinders in place mm-hmm. so if you're going to, to remove a cylinder you are necessarily um, changing the torque and changing the assembly of the two case halves um, that can be done correctly, um, but it's a lot easier to do with the engine out of the airplane. A lot of people are going to be tempted to do these inspections with the engine in the airplane, which may or may not adversely impact the way these engines are assembled. Punchline is, um, because of the loss of torque and then reapplication of torque on the, the, uh, the case halves on the crankshaft itself, and the bearings uh, supporting that crankshaft, uh, we could get misaligned bearings, we could get spun bearings, we could get uh, crankshaft issues down the road because of this this uh, process. Yeah. Uh, that's my understanding uh, of, of the uh, mechanics, the physics involved here. Um, so that's kind of, that's my understanding of, of where things stand. Yeah. David, you have any thoughts on this? What... what? Well, I everything that I, I read from Mike Bush on this and the uh, colloquy between uh, the engine maker and the FAA seems like we're on a hell-bent for leather rush to uh, do something, even if it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. It does seem, and, uh, well, I mean, that's, the, that's certainly the argument that Mike makes in things he's written in the last couple of weeks. Um, well, and, the, and, and he makes and a compelling the, argument, and he has a reputation of knowing what he's talking about. Mike, Mike is is if nothing, a really great data gatherer and, and data analyzer. Uh, and uh, you know, people debate his mechanics uh, at their peril, in my opinion. But when he starts quoting data. Uh, I never question it. Uh, you know, I might look, double check where his numbers came from, but he's a fairly data-driven guy where the issues like this are concerned. And they, uh, his group, uh, users, uh, owners' groups, they proposed uh, some alternative ideas 
that were not as intrusive and seem to have gotten nowhere with it. Yeah. And this is this has been something that's come up before between the FAA and, and engine manufacturers, where the outside opinion doesn't carry any weight until the original opinion is proven to cause problems that the FAA didn't acknowledge before. Yeah. Yeah. And then the alternative methods of compliance are sometimes reconsidered and brought into. And I think that's what we're looking at right now is – the uh, engine maker is interested in uh, covering itself as it should be because that's going to help cover some of the uh, the operators. But when the cure raises more risk than doing nothing, you have to sit back and wonder whether the FAA is doing its job appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I'm sorry, Jeb, you want to say something? No, I, no, I, I just. So I wanted to, to, I'd like to, I'd like to postpone sort of continuing to talk about the details of this, the impact of this, the mechanics of this, because I think maybe next episode or so, or, or some soon future episode, that's a phrase, right? Soon, soon future. Um, soon future. Yeah. Soon future. Um, we're going to have an authority on the podcast who can speak with some, some knowledge about this whole thing. Yeah. Give us a different perspective, but you're, you're dancing around it. I, we, we've already reached out to Mike. We uh, have, and I don't want to put him on the spot to, if he's, on yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to put him on the spot either. Either, you know, he can or, or yeah. he cannot but come we're on, trying to get but Mike. we'd like to get him on to, to talk about this. Yeah. It, and, and Mike's been on the podcast before and he's, he's sure. a friend. And, uh, so that's a good thing, but just give me, help me understand just a little bit of context here. Um, first of all, um, 700 and something engines with this level of, of complexity of the inspection, is this a, where does this fit in the, in the, in this, in the universe of ADs? Is this a big AD or is this a, a minor or I don't, how, it seems big to me is my point. I don't think you can call having to remove a cylinder or a minor AD. Yeah. Okay. And is 700 yeah, I, I a big number? I mean, that. Is that a lot of airplanes in this in the scheme of things here? Not really. Okay. No. In my in my view, not really. Um, you know, if we were talking about fifteen hundred airplanes or twenty five hundred airplanes, uh, uh, might be talking about. You know, I don't know where we cross that line from sure. insubstantial, or insignificant to significant and insubstantial. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, but. Um, there's a lot of other issues that, that are involved here, not least of which, as you correctly point out, um, is the cure worse than the disease? Mm-hmm. Um, I think another thing going on here that is just, you know, I, I think perhaps needs to come uh, a little bit closer to the surface is who pays for this nonsense? This was my other question, all right? And that is if Lycoming provided flawed parts and and this seems to be definitely the case, then how is this not Lycoming's expense? Exactly. And, you know, I just, as both of you know, I, I uh, late last year bought a, a 15-year-old BMW, and I started getting um, these notices in the mail that the car is subject to a recall. And it's got one of these Takata airbags in it, and I'm taking oh, it tomorrow yeah. to get the airbag replaced. Yep. Uh, that's all free to me because, you know, I didn't buy the car new, um, but I do own the car and, um, I, I get to take it back to the dealer and they, they will pray, they will replace the airbag for free. Um, why, what is it about, um, and I, I mean, I certainly know things about, you know, the federal motor vehicle safety standards and how manufacturers are held liable for these kinds of things. Uh, how do we get there from here on on airplanes? And and all right, do we? Uh, is that an appropriate uh, uh, thing to try? And and more importantly, how do we distinguish between when the manufacturer steps up to the plate and covers covers the expense for this versus when they don't? Um, this is going to be an interesting test, I think, for the industry and for especially Lycoming as to what kind of assistance they render owners and operators. Um, Mike also recently, I don't know if it's Mike or Paul Bertarelli or, or somebody, recently noted that Continental uh, is investing some, some, I guess it was Paul actually, investing some, some resources in uh, um, their uh, engine manufacturing process 
as well as starting to manufacture parts for Lycoming engines. And uh, that could be an interesting outcome uh, in that um, um, additional pressure would be put on, in this case, Lycoming, but I think uh, all engine manufacturers generally, uh, to uh, um, build up some more brand loyalty and maybe uh, support their customers a little bit differently than they have been in the past. Okay. We'll come back to this because I want to dig in. Oh, yeah. We yeah. have someone who, uh, I mean, we know a little bit about this, but, but, but someone who really knows yeah. a lot about it would be an interesting conversation. So anyways, if you have a, if your airplane has a Lycoming engine in it, um, or you fly an airplane that has a Lycoming engine in it, it might suit you. It might, you might do well to double check this stuff, make sure, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, shout outs. What do we got? Folks at home, they're all scrambling because there are no shout-outs on the list today. There are no shout-outs on the list. (laughs) Now they're going, um, 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 um. And maybe there are no shout-outs. I have one shout-out. While you guys are pondering this whole subject, I just wanted to remind people that we are looking for help with the podcast. We would like to find uh, someone with audio production and editing experience to help with the post-production editing and publishing of the episodes of this podcast. Um, and so, uh, if you are, uh, had those skills and, and would like to pitch in, um, this is, won't be a totally volunteer thing. You're not going to make a lot of money. You probably won't even make the money that you're worth, but there is a stipend involved. Um, and, and as a result, there are some, you know, sort of requirements, but, uh, but basically we're looking for someone to, who wants to uh, become part of the UCAP team uh, and help us with the production of this podcast uh, if you think you might be that person uh, go to the uh, UCAP homepage uncontrolledairspace.com and click on the little box there for a slightly more detailed description of what it is we're looking to accomplish and, and find so uh, please take a look um, and and my disclaimer again from last time we talked about this my apologies to all the people who, who signed up for a similar request about a year or so ago, and then everything fell through. Won't fall through this time. Take my word for it. So, uh, <laughs> um, please, uh, if you if you're interested in getting involved and have some of these skills, uh, reach out to me. I want to talk to you. Any any shoutouts? Uh, yeah, I've, I've got a real quick one, uh-huh. uh, and that is to uh, Robert Sumwald. Um, who uh, was recently confirmed by the U.S. Senate as uh, the new next chairman of the uh, uh, National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB. Okay. Uh, Senate confirmed him uh, on August 3. Some Walt is a pilot. He's uh, um, um, a uh, former airline pilot with Piedmont and with U.S. Airways. Um, I think he's still an active pilot. I might be confusing him with another member of the board. Um, but, um, he, he replaces, um, I forget her name, who, who, uh, um, um, whose term expired. Um, okay. And, you know, um, yeah, um, I, the, the other punchline I was going to, to roll into this is that, uh, uh, Michael Huerta, uh, current, uh, administrator of the FAA, his five-year term is ending in the near future. I was going to ask you about that. Yes, yeah, so we're going yeah. to get a new administrator. Or, or We're going to get a new administrator sometime in the near future. Yeah. Or at least an acting administrator. Right. Now, now returning to this NTSB uh, uh, head for a moment here. Um, so the, the Trump administration has a somewhat spotty track record, many of us believe, in terms of the quality and nature of its, of its, uh, of its uh, um, you know, candidates for these kinds of positions um do we have any sense of whether this is a is a, a good person is the right person for the job it has the skills or not um, i'm not i'm not sure i understand your question are you talking about is Huerta the right person no no, for no, no. This? the ntsb person that you named um uh some walt yeah i think he's he's certainly a good uh um, um yeah I've, I've spoken with him in the past um and he's got a, a very good understanding of aviation Generally, uh, and uh, certainly by this time, he's, he'd been on. He's he's been on the NTSB uh, as simply a member, but not chairman for a number of years. Uh, so he's, he's, this is not a new uh, a piece okay. of territory for All him. Right. No, that's that's, um, that's was, encouraging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just looking at, at Huerta's uh, bio. Uh, Huerta took uh, his office as uh, FIA administrator on January 7, twenty thirteen. 
So he's good through January, or at least until January. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, um, but um, uh, he, he will be leaving the FAA in the near future is the punchline. Is that a certainty? Or does the administrator get renewed? Um, this is a sufficiently new... Uh, the, the fact that uh, FAA administrator gets a five-year term is a sufficiently new development in the overall history of the FAA that there isn't any precedent. Um, okay. Jane, Jane Garvey back in the 90s, I believe, was the first person to get a five-year term at the FAA as an FAA administrator. And um, between she and uh, Marion Blakey and... Um, um, the guy who had to leave and put and resulted in Huerta's Babbitt, uh, Randy Babbitt. Um, there simply hasn't been uh, enough of a uh, a turnover. the The punchline is um, the the FAA administrator cannot be removed except you know I don't know maybe impeached or shot or something uh, during that five year term. He or she could extend that five years uh, uh, after it expires, I think, uh, at their own decision. But the history has been, the president has been, that once the five years uh, rolls up, that the incumbent administrator uh, leaves the post. It becomes vacant, and an acting administrator uh, fills in until a, a new administrator is named and confirmed. Got it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. David, you're awful quiet. Anything? Shout-outs or response to this one? Uh, just a real quick shout-out, more of a personal note. I want to thank the uh, the nice folks at the Kansas Pilots Association for inviting me to speak to their dinner last week. And uh, coming the day after I'd gotten back from Oshkosh, I was surprised I was at all coherent. But uh, apparently it went over okay special thanks to mike and wanda flynn for inviting me and then and, and uh picking up dinner and a uh, nice group of people uh, mm-hmm. trying really hard to uh you know, keep people flying and to do something with their pilot's license they're they're one of their points of discussion was of course places to fly out to on august 21 for the eclipse yeah so, yeah yeah yeah. So thanks, folks, and uh, would do it again anytime. Very cool. Very cool. Anything else? Or is it fork time? Fork. Fork time. Okay. Uh, thank you, guys. It's always fun. I really, really do enjoy it. I'm glad we. Uh, second time's a charm. We weren't able to record last week, but we. Uh, I think we pulled it off here. Knock on wood. Uh, Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's Ab Buyer magazine. David, have you been working on anything fun? I know you've been working on all kinds of things. Tell us about one you know, of them. Well, let's see. Next uh, September Avionics News will have a wrap-up of uh, all the high points in avionics from Oshkosh. Oh, my goodness. Okay, that's great. Anything else? Is that it? Where can people find you on, on the Internet, David? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Real Higdon. Uh, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, uh, Airscribe, Dave Higdon. Both will find me. Uh, AEA.net, avbuyer.com, just anywhere you might care to Google. I'll be be there. (laughs) Sounds good. Yeah. You are much more the uh, social media butterfly these days. Uh, You're you're turning up more and more places. I'm, I'm impressed, David. It's very cool. Very cool. And Jeb Burnside. Jeb is a, uh, avi- a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What have you been working on, Jeb? You back to the grindstone yet? You just did another magazine, I think, didn't you? I just did another magazine. Yeah, my grindstone uh, started up basically as soon as I got back from uh, from Oshkosh a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. So uh, I've successfully dodged that bullet. Uh, the, um, the September issue of Aviation Safety is in the can. Um, but, uh, since then I've been basically kind of, uh, licking my wounds and, and, um, uh, recovering and unpacking and, and doing all that kind of stuff. A lot of little projects here around the house. Um, and I'm, I'm contemplating, um, going to see the, uh, the eclipse, oh. um, taking the airplane north maybe uh, to, uh, yeah. to check that out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that picture. fairly seriously. 
Yeah, it could be, yeah. Talk to Tupper. Yeah. I believe he's got quite an elaborate plan to do that kind of thing, and uh, he might have some pointers for you. Interesting. It. I, I don't, yeah, I'm not really looking to be too elaborate here other than timing it's where I'm, I'm airborne in the shadow. Yeah, um, yeah that would so, be cool. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's, and you don't need to be elaborate. Uh, if you know Tupper, you know that he has to be elaborate. He's quite... Well, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's yeah. into that kind of oh, details. I want to complicate it and make my, you know, and if, and if there are forms to be filled out, better yet. He's better yeah he's good at forms anyways uh where can people find you on the internet jeb uh aviationsafetymagazine.com uh occasionally i'll also be um seen at uh, aea.net writing for uh, uh the aircraft electronics association's uh, avionics news uh, magazine um occasionally uh, you might even see a byline um on um, ain uh, aviation international news very cool and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a digital media producer. Um, I really, really am making progress on Volume 3 of my Around the Field series. Uh, this is the uh, collections of the stories that I wrote about past years of air venture. And I'm, I'm shooting to have that Volume 3 out, some, out sometime this fall is, is my goal. So uh, uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, in the meantime, if you haven't already, please take a look at Volumes 1 and 2, uh, Grassroots Aviation Stories from Oshkosh, years 1998 to 2004. And you can find those in the amazon.com the kindle store they're on available for the kindle through amazon um i have uh, uh some new videos uh, that have gone up on my youtube channel um i i finally put up one final video this was actually before uh, our air venture before oshkosh i put up one final video from last spring sun and fun fly-in um that was a, a video about the saturday morning balloon launch which is incredibly picturesque and i just really enjoy it a lot and so i shot a bunch of video there that morning and, and pulled that together so that's on my youtube channel um and i'm gradually publishing videos from the footage that i shot at uh, oshkosh 2017 these past this past a couple weeks ago um i have uh walk arounds of the uh, proteus uh aircraft uh, is a video there another video is the uh, odd but lovable yl-15 the boeing uh, uh liaison and and uh and uh, uh, apparently forward forward air control kind of aircraft as well so uh that's uh, those are up there um and then another one uh, a really quick and dirty uh, uh video i posted of the takeoff of the b-29 dock that happened during the uh, recording of our episode there from the announcer stand and so that's that's there as well and uh and by the time you hear this maybe more you never know so uh yeah you can find out more about those videos that's at uh, youtube.com slash jack hodgson uh and on amazon please search for around the field in the books section of amazon and uh, follow me on twitter at uh, twitter.com slash jack hodgson sign up for my email newsletter you can learn more about that uh, me than you ever really wanted to know at my basic website which is jackhodgson.com Big thanks to everybody who helps us with this podcast. Thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, please support UCAP by making a repeating per donation, per episode donation of any size via the online service Patreon. Uh, get all the details about this at patreon.com slash uncontrolled airspace. And while you're at it, go into iTunes and give us a review and some thumbs up. That really helps get the word out about the podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at twitter.com slash class g airspace that's all one word class the letter g and airspace uh, you never know what might turn up there you can also listen to ucap in the free section of sporty's pilot shops mobile app takeoff along with other podcasts and special sporty's content get your ucap hat shirts and other cool gear at the ucap swag shop that's at uncontrolledairspace.com slash store uh, and don't forget to check out the rest of the ucap website 11 years worth of ucap show notes and episode downloads all of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com david you're going to tell us something here well but if you want to stop time go fly because as you know time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan so you live longer that way bye-bye and that's enough talking. Let's go flying. And by the time you hear this, it'll be 48 weeks till Oshkosh. <laughs> I love a challenge. <laughs> <laughs>